Welcome to Digging Deeper in Grace, a ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Cedarville, Ohio. Our goal each episode is to dig deeper into the scriptures with a focus on our most recent sermon. And now let's dig deeper. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Digging Deeper in Grace. I'm your host, Bart Sheridan, and Tim Cockrell is back at the table for today's discussion. Tim shared with our church a message from Exodus chapter 3, verses 15 through chapter 4, verse 31 this past weekend, and we'll be discussing that passage and his sermon in the coming minutes. So, Tim, here we are again. By my count, it's number 12 that you and I have been sitting here across the table since the first of the year. And sort of like, you like farm illusions. Yep. So it's sort of like an old pair of gloves for me, uh, <laughs> an old Carhartt jacket that uh, is uh, getting a little frayed but really feels comfortable, yep. old pickup truck. Thanks for, thanks for your time. I always enjoy getting together with you. Likewise. Very good. Well, well, Tim, once again, you gave us a lot to consider from this long passage, and it is quite a long passage relative mm-hmm. to what we've been doing. But, but one question I had, and I'm just curious, it was related to both last week and this week. Why did we cut last week at verse 14? It seemed to me, as I read 14 and 15, it's kind of a, a continuation. God says my name, you know, I am who I am. Tell him I am is sent you. And then he gives a, a an elongated name. Mm-hmm. He said, this is a name that you shall know me for all generations. Yes. Why do we cut there? Yeah. So anytime we're splitting out passages, there's always debates as to where do you split it. And this one's especially challenging. Sometimes we call these hinge passages where it draws from what you've seen before and also points you to what's ahead. So theoretically, it could go in either place. Uh, in this case, Uh, we split it in part because in verse 16, we have this reaffirmation of here's what you're to tell them that I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so there's kind of a cohesion that's there. And also verse 15 begins with, and again, God said to him, now we don't know whether there was a a pause in the conversation or what, but it seemed like that there was kind of a, a split there that would point us ahead, not just to God's powerful nature, but to his personal promise-keeping nature. And uh, so it, it bridges the two, because honestly, it's it's all one cohesive unit. There were no chapter and verse splits right. back in the day. Well, just in the whole scheme of things, a moot point, but it just caught my attention. Of I course. thought I'd ask the question. If I had it, maybe somebody else had it. I'd hate to think somebody else thinks like I do, but anyway. <laughs> so, okay, so names in the biblical culture. They typically meant something. And today, when I think of the word Tim, I don't think about what it means, that is, you know, the etymology and everything. I just think of you. I think, mm-hmm. okay, what is Tim like? But in this case, names created the image, uh, mm-hmm. so to speak. Uh, God presents his name, for example. We said there in verse 14, I am who I am. We, Yahweh, Jehovah comes from that. Mm-hmm. But then in verse 15, he does describe himself. And he describes himself as the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And then he goes on to say, of course, this is my name forever, and thus I'm to be remembered throughout all generations. What did that compound name say to Moses? What did that say to the original here, the elders, when Moses said, this is what God told me to tell you? Right. It's hard to know exactly what they would have understood because even just in some of the research I'm doing for this next week's sermon, it would appear that the name Yahweh was actually 
known all the way back in the book of Genesis. That this wasn't the very first time Yahweh was used here, but it's almost like it's uh, progressively being revealed. And so I think the fact that then in verse 15, he reiterates, I am the Lord. Again, that's Yahweh. When you see in your English Bible, Lord in all capital letters, that's how you know this is the covenant-keeping personal name of God. And then he says, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I think one of the things we need to do is try to put ourselves in the ancient Israelites' perspective. If you were to ask an ancient Israelite, who is God? Like, they wouldn't have pulled out Grudem's systematic theology or, or a textbook. They would have told you a story. Because it was in the story that God's nature was revealed. So even when he describes himself as the God of Abraham... Isaac and Jacob. For the Israelite, that would have evoked many different connotations, even the weakness of Abraham, the deception of Jacob, but the faithfulness of God to the covenant. And so as we think about the Israelites who were slaving away in Egypt, they had been there for you know over 400 years at this point, although probably not enslaved for that entire time, we see some evidence that they had been forgetful of who God was, that they had begun worshiping the gods of Egypt. And so as God tells Moses, here's who I am and here's what you're to tell them, he draws them back to his covenant-keeping name and to his covenant-keeping promises that he had demonstrated to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So you're, you're talking covenants, you're talking about Genesis 12, you know, I'm going to give you a, a land, a, a people, or make you a, a land, a people, a blessing. Exactly. Um, another thing that comes to my mind is chapter 15 of Genesis, God prophesize to Abraham, hey, this is what's going to happen. You're mm-hmm. going to go to be with your fathers. You're going to die. And you, these people that are going to come from you are going to go into a land, not their own, and they're going to be enslaved there. And exactly. after 400 years, I'm going to bring them out. Somewhat a confirmation now, 400 some years later, to the Israelites, hey, this has come to pass. This is what I'm doing. Right. And and so many times we all can be forgetful of that. I mean, how many times in the New Testament does the Jesus say, in this world, you will have trouble. Don't be surprised when you are mistreated and, and persecuted because that's the way they treated me as your master. And yet when we go through some hard times, we're like, Lord, what's, what's going on? And, and I do think that he's calling their attention, not just back to his promises, but to his character and that he, he has always been faithful, even in those moments where it didn't feel like it was going well or it was right. good from human perspective. Mm, great, great. Well, I got to tell you, you ruined a significant <laughs> scene in, in DeMille's The Ten Commandments for me. Now, I remember as a kid, I'm watching Charlton Heston, I'm watching John Carradine playing Moses and Aaron, and they're back, they're up there right in front of Pharaoh. That, but you're saying they weren't standing in front of Pharaoh alone. And of course, Scripture points this out. What gives there? You, you mentioned in relation to the elders of a church. Uh, this and how this refers to the elders of the church, the elders being there. Would you then suggest that that Moses could be likened to maybe the super elder or super pastor? Is that a, is that a reasonable stretch? Well, we don't know for sure whether the elders actually followed through and went with Moses. It's interesting. Okay. <laughs> I mean, so I mean, this True. is what God commands. But yeah. it's interesting that when we read about Moses and Aaron coming before Pharaoh. 
the elders aren't mentioned, but it certainly is possible that they were there. Even when Pharaoh says, you know, you're keeping the people from their work, he may have been pointing to the gray hairs that were, were around Moses at this point, who himself was, of course, a gray hair at this mm-hmm. point in his life as well. But I think the principle that we bring out here is just the principle of plurality. You know, many times when we think about any of the, the key figures in Scripture, David or, or Paul or Peter or you know, Abraham and, and people like Moses, we, we imagine them almost as these kind of lone ranger heroes. But over and over again, we see that they were most effective when they were serving in the context of plural leadership. But even as you mentioned, Moses's role in that was not the same as all the other elders. And so I don't know that I would necessarily use the term super elder, but I do think it brings out the point that within plurality, there can be a diversity of responsibilities. So even in our own elder board here at at Grace, you know, Brandon is our elder chair. That entails a certain level of responsibility and even at times authority that that doesn't impinge on on the authority and responsibility of the other elders, but it's by nature the fact that we've recognized that he has certain gifting that helps lead our elder team in a particular way. In the same way, you know, Pastor Josh and his gifts, and, and certainly myself as an elder having different responsibilities, I think it points out that we can share leadership and we need to share leadership, but that isn't going to look the same for each individual that's a part of that team. And even later, my mind's drawn then to later on as we get into the early part of the 40-year wilderness wandering where Jethro comes to Moses and says, hey, we're going to hear that in a few weeks. Mm-hmm. Hey, uh, you need to rely on these guys. Yes, absolutely. That You're not a one-man show. And whether it was because Moses thought he was the only one who could do it, or whether he had gotten into a pattern where he, he cared for the people and he wanted to be there, but that the best way to do that is by relying on others to use their gifts in community. Okay, so let's take a let's take a turn here. We talked. Uh, there's a lot of talk here in this passage, and I think it, it's a very natural uh, uh, conversation to come out of this. That Moses had trouble in his responses to mm-hmm. God's calling, and there are people in church congregations around the world, and, and certainly around the corner, and let's just say it right here at Grace, who struggle with these types of responses, mm-hmm. God calling them to even the simplest of things. It's easy to say, I'm just not capable. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are some practical tips that you can share for those who want to be used, they hear God calling them to be the husband, be the father, be the discipler, mm-hmm. whatever it might be, be the godly person or, or woman or man or whatever, but they just don't feel useful. Mm-hmm. It might be because of education, age, whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the the key thing that we all struggle with in different ways and at different times is those feelings of inadequacy and insufficiency. And we imagine that our inadequacy is then an obstacle from us doing what God has called us to do. So I don't have the education I need to teach this class, or I I don't know enough about the Bible to be able to disciple my kids, or I I don't know enough about apologetics to be able to share my faith. And, And as gently and as lovingly, but still as directly as I can, I would just tell the listener, it's not about you. I think that's the whole message that God is giving Moses here in this passage, is every time Moses is objecting about, but I can't, God says, but I can. Moses says, you know, I'm not sufficient. God says, but that's my thing. (laughs) My power is made perfect in your weakness. Now, there still are a number of other factors then that we have to think through. 
as far as then how do we take those steps of faith. And I think it starts by just looking for the opportunities that God has given us. So we don't have to evangelize the whole world. We start with that family member or that neighbor, the person we're sitting next to on the airplane, and we just choose to be faithful. And one of the things that's most encouraging to me as I studied this text for last week as well as in preparation for this next week is God doesn't call us to be successful. He calls us to be faithful. And whether that's as a parent, as a husband, as a church member, we leave the results up to God. Just as much as a farmer, if I can go to a farm analogy, you know, <laughs> takes the seeds and puts them in the ground, he's not the one that makes those things grow. He's called to plow and to plant and to fertilize and to care, but ultimately God's the one that's going to bring the harvest. And that should actually bring us a great deal of reassurance that he is the one who does the work. And I also would just say, don't be afraid to serve in big or small ways, because often our view of small is not the same as God's. Any work that is done for Christ has ultimate importance eternally. One of the illustrations that I love is there's a a Sunday school teacher back in the day. His name was Edward Kimball, and he had the responsibility of teaching the teen boys in the church, which you might think, man, that's uh, essentially teen babysitting, right? That you're just trying to keep the chaos under control. But he had a young man in his Sunday school class, and every week he would show up, and this young man really just didn't seem interested in spiritual things. And so Edward Kimball decided, I'm going to go on a Saturday to where this guy works at a shoe store, and I'm going to share the gospel with him. And so he does that, and he shares the gospel with this young man, and he trusts Christ. That young man's name was D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody went on to preach Christ to many different people, and under D.L. Moody's ministry, a guy by the name of Wilbur Chapman was converted. And Wilbur Chapman began doing different evangelistic ministries, and Billy Sunday was saved under his ministry. A great baseball player. Exactly. (laughs) And then under Billy Sunday, a man named Mordecai Ham trusted Christ, and that Mordecai Ham evangelistic meeting, a guy named Billy Graham trusted Christ. And so we can see this all traced back to a Sunday school teacher who just simply followed the prompting of God to share the gospel in a shoe store. And by God's grace, his ministry was multiplied in ways that he never would have even dreamed so that people could hear the message of the gospel. And so if you're feeling that sense of inadequacy and insufficiency, I would just encourage you, trust God's word. Trust his promises that he who has called you will be faithful. And as you follow him in faith, you might be amazed at how he works in you as well as through you. How many times have you responded, trying to respond in faithfulness? You felt you failed in whatever task. I've been there. Mm-hmm. But again, you say God does not, uh, he does not call you to success. He calls you to, to faithfulness. Absolutely. Right. And even just to preview this next week, you know, Moses goes, he's already shared it with the Israelites. They listen. He has some early success. He shows up to Pharaoh and Pharaoh says, I'm not going to do that. And then the Israelites actually get mad at Moses. What are you doing? And Moses comes back in this just deep discouragement and says, God, I told you I couldn't do it. And God says, you just wait and see what I'm going to do. This is all a part of my plan. Right. And I think that's what we just have to keep in mind is that his plan is unfolding and we get the joy of being a participant in it. It's great to be able to look back at those 10 years later and see, well, God, now I get it. And sometimes we don't. Sometimes we do get that insight, but sometimes we say, God, I... I still don't see why you would allow that person to walk away from the faith or that ministry to fold or that church to to split. But in 
eternity, we will look at it and say, God, yeah. you have been good and you've done what is right. And that's truly where faith comes in, right? Exactly. Just trusting God for that, his word. So, Tim, a, a listener emailed me the other day on Sunday, pointed out, had a question, Moses's <clears throat> message to his father-in-law there in, would have been in verse 18 of chapter 4, says Moses went back to his father-in-law Jethro and said to him, please let me return to my relatives in Egypt and see if they're still living. You applauded him for graciously talking to his father-in-law, telling him this is what we're, where we're going. He didn't tell him the whole story. Right. This listener is saying, okay, what gives here? Why was he sandbagging Jethro a little bit? <laughs> well, there's a number of different perspectives, and sometimes we just don't know for certain. Uh, one commentator that I read I thought was intriguing said, Moses may not have been exactly sure. You know, I mean, even as Moses was listening to what God said, he maybe wasn't really sure God was going to use him to deliver the Israelites. And so he was willing to to kind of take an initial faltering step of faith. But Moses wasn't ready to declare, I'm going to go back to Egypt and and deliver the people of, of Israel through God's power. He says, I'm, I'm ready to go back to Egypt, and that's about all I'm really ready to commit to. And, you know, there's also the possibility, I, I liked the way one commentator described it, that this is courteous discretion within the bounds of truth. That is, he didn't say something that was untrue, but that he showed discretion knowing that to say everything that he knew would likely cause his father-in-law additional distress mm-hmm. and, and make that goodbye even harder. And we see even examples of that. I think of the story of when God tells Samuel to go anoint David as king. And Samuel says, well, what should I tell Saul? He says, well, tell Saul I'm going to offer a sacrifice, which he did. But that wasn't the primary purpose. And so that leads to a lot of ethical questions is God telling Samuel to deceive or, or whatever it might be. But I think we also have to recognize this wasn't the whole conversation. Right. You know, right. Moses is summarizing the essence of what was said there. And so it may be that there were additional details that we just don't have included here in the book of Exodus. Okay. So then a second question, and we're not going to let you let you off the hook on this whole matter of the <laughs> circumcision of the son. But uh, you, we, we had some good time with that uh, on Sunday as you were speaking. But uh, he says, please elaborate on the bridegroom of blood uh, phrase there in verse 25. He says, I understand the implication of obedience to God with regard to circumcision, but I don't understand the phrase bridegroom of blood. So let's talk through that. Let's also talk a little bit more about what this passage says to God's people today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, again, this is one of those where it's hard to read tone in in an ancient Hebrew writing. Because there's no emoji there. Exactly. Yeah. You know, you don't even get an exclamation point as to whether or not there was some emphasis here. But it does seem that there's some emotion involved in this. Commentators are kind of split as to whether this is an emotion of, of relief or even joy on Zipporah's part, such that she thought she was going to lose her husband and that by God's grace, his anger was withheld, his wrath was appeased, and that Moses was given back to her, almost like she's receiving her bridegroom a second time. And that that, that would mean there's some uh, adoration, some love, and even some joy that's here, that you are a bridegroom of blood to me. You've now been given back to me by virtue of the shedding of blood through faith, which was why Moses' life was spared. But it's also possible that Zipporah is expressing 
frustration or, or even a begrudging spirit. Um, many people speculate that the Midianites would have waited to circumcise their children until they reached adolescent age. And so some people believe that maybe that's why Moses hadn't uh, circumcised his younger son was because Zipporah was kind of pressuring him to say, no, Moses, we need to do it according to the way of my people. And that if that was the case for her having to go through this ritual, she may have expressed a matter of, of disgust or frustration that now our, our marriage is is tarnished by this blood because I've had to do something almost against my will. And one of it's the reasons... It's not the way my family does it. Right, exactly. I've never had to do something. Right, there's, there's no marriage conflicts like that that we ever have to deal with. Um, but I think this is one of those places where it's really interesting to dig into and speculate. But one of the reasons why we didn't do that in the sermon on Sunday is because I think it's easy for us to get lost in the weeds. Because ultimately, whether she was frustrated or overjoyed, that's not the point. She is saying that you are are spared because of the shedding of blood. And so when we think about how do we apply this, I was personally convicted as we just think about God is willing to discuss and bear with Moses in his lack of faith, even his objections to going, but he was not willing to bear with Moses's refusal to be faithful to lead his family well. And man, you think about 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus 1 and (laughs) that responsibility that that an elder who's to lead must lead first in his family, and and that God will not tolerate a, a lapse of personal character or personal integrity as we serve him. Now, obviously, none of us are perfect. Nobody's coming here in a way that says, yeah, I've got it all together. But man, we better make sure that we are leading ourselves and leading our families well before we presume to lead God's people well. And, And that's kind of the priority that I take away from this story. And there might be a matter of uh, if a member of our church, for example, or, or a one who is attending and who would like to be a member has not been baptized mm-hmm. or is not being faithful to God in the simple things, mm-hmm. and which would be kind of simple, I think, a first step. Right. You know, because circumcision was the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. It was the external expression of faith and the inclusion in God's community. And so I have. I've talked to a number of people in churches over the years that say, well, I, I've never been baptized, but I don't think you have to be saved to be baptized, so I don't think it's that important. And I would agree or with baptized that. baptized to be or, saved. Yes, I'm sorry. Yeah. You don't have to be baptized to be saved. Yes. <laughs> I knew you. what you meant. Thank you for clarifying that. <laughs> and I understand where they're coming from, and certainly our works aren't what saves us. But if God calls us to that step of obedience, that ought to be our first impulse to say, now that I've been saved, I'm going to obey the explicit instructions as a demonstration that I'll obey all of the instructions that are there. And I've heard debates even for people that say, I don't think God requires that I be a member. And I understand even some of those objections, but I think we also have to just really search our heart to say, why is it that I'm not willing to take those steps? Because many times what it comes down to is an objection that is is either selfish or prideful or just stubborn. And, and I feel that tell me. I feel that, that stubbornness <laughs> yeah, right. in my own heart that, that says, Well, I don't think I should have to, but you know, Moses 
God takes his refusal to do this very seriously. Hmm. Tim, when we first started the study of Exodus, uh, we we talked through why why the Old Testament, why Exodus, and you'd mentioned that you know the, the Old Testament does tell the story of Jesus. Mm-hmm. It's sort of the prequel. Uh, I don't know if you use that word, but I think that's a good word. We talk regularly that the Old Testament tells us about Jesus, and certainly Exodus is one of the books that figures prominently in the New Testament in Jesus' teaching uh, throughout. But what should we have learned by G- about Jesus through this part of the book of Exodus, the yeah. story of the, the children's leaving, Israel children and children leaving uh, Egypt? Yeah, it's a great question. And, and up to this point, I don't know that we have lots of really explicit allusions, but I think when we look at the book of Hebrews, over and over it talks about Jesus being the, the true and better, the true mm. and better Adam, the true mm. and better Moses, the true and better priest, uh, that many of these stories are are reflecting that the character that we're seeing is a, a foreshadowing or, or an anticipation. A type? A, a type, exactly, of a true and better one who will come. And, and so even Moses being the, the prince that leaves the palace to come and identify with his people, the, the prophet who is called to faithfully proclaim God's message to his people, the deliverer who would say yes to God's will, even when it was incredibly difficult. And and even we talk about God describing Israel as my firstborn son. Hmm. You know, it explicitly says in the book of Matthew, you know, it quotes, out of Egypt I called my son. Now, if you continue in that, that quoting, it says, but the more and more I called, the more and more he disobeyed which was what Israel was prone to do. But Jesus is the true and better son. He is the one and only son of God who was faithful to the father in ways that Israel never was. And so I think even as we see Moses's failing and faltering faith, it gives us a greater appreciation for Jesus as the true and better deliverer who would come to reveal God's character, to redeem his people, and to be the prophet, the priest, and the king that no human ever could. Good. And and I think to the story of Jesus, even the fact that Herod sought to kill the babies, mm-hmm. certainly a, a parallel, Yes, sending Mary and Joseph to Egypt so Jesus could come out. These little things are not little things. These are just part and parcel to the story linking him to uh, Moses and linking him to the story and the uh, the picture that Moses portrayed. That's correct. That's Actually, me. you know, when, when God says to Moses in chapter 4, verse 19, you know, the ones who sought your life have died, that's almost verbatim what right. the angel tells Joseph uh, when they are down in Egypt that gives them the all clear, if you will, to come back into the land. And so there are some remarkable parallels. Mm-hmm. Give us a quick ramp up to this Sunday. What uh, where are we going to be? And uh, can you just foreshadow a little bit? Of so? course. So we're going to be looking at Exodus chapter five through Exodus chapter seven, verse thirteen, and it's another big section of scripture. In fact, they're even going to get bigger as we get to the plagues. But it really hangs together as a unit as as Moses shows up to Pharaoh. He's already seen a really exciting response, and all of a sudden Pharaoh is just hard hearted and refuses, which is what God predicted. But then the people have to work even harder. They have to make bricks without straw, and they begin to complain against Moses and are frustrated. And and there's just such a a pure moment that Scripture recounts that Moses writes for us of his discouragement in that moment. He says, God, see, I told you 
this wasn't going to work. Why wouldn't you listen to me? And and man, don't we resonate with that sometimes where we follow God in his calling and it doesn't go the way we expect and we're like, man, maybe I just missed it. But we get then to chapter six that really is going to be our focus where we have the, the seven I wills of the Lord. He says, I am Yahweh. And then he reassures Moses with, here are the things that I'm going to do. I will call you out. I will set you free. I will will judge your enemies. I will bless you in ways that you don't anticipate. And then he again concludes with, I am Yahweh. And verse 9 of chapter 6 has just a really fascinating verse that says, and the people heard it, but they would not listen because their hearts were heavy with discouragement. And man, there's a whole wealth of pastoral implication there. And then Moses and, and Aaron go back to Pharaoh. They do the signs of the, the leprosy and the, the stick that turns into a snake. Pharaoh still refuses, and it sets us up then for the 10 plagues, which will be ultimately kind of a cosmic battle in which God demonstrates his supremacy over the gods of Egypt. And over this glory stealer, exactly. as you pointed out. Tim, thanks for being here. We appreciate your insights, and thanks for your good work. Thank you. Well, Tim Cockerell has once again been my guest for this episode of Digging Deeper in Grace. We've been discussing his recent sermon from Exodus chapters 3 and 4, and you can access that message on demand through YouTube. You can also access each podcast episode by using your favorite podcast app or by visiting gracecedarville.org on the World Wide Web and clicking podcast on the media tab. We also encourage you to share your questions and comments with us each week by emailing them to contact at gracecedarville.org. That's contact at gracecedarville.org. And plan to join us next week. We'll be continuing our discussion of God's Word as we move into Exodus chapters 5 through 7. And until then, I'm your host, Bart Sheridan, thanking you for tuning into this week's episode of Digging Deeper in Grace. Digging Deeper in Grace is a ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Cedarville, Ohio. Visit us online at gracecedarville.org and join us next time as we continue our discussion. In the meantime, we invite you to continue digging deeper in grace as you read God's Word.